All right, folks, we're here with Jeff Daniels, the, uh, the author of this uh, great book about his brother, Terry Daniels, and uh, Tom recommended to us. And we've got uh, Psychic Tom and Tony the Tornado with us. How's it going, Jeff? Good, guys. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, the process of uh, writing this book. Well, it was the first one that I ever decided to to do and um, I wanted to do it right much like my brother that I wrote about he always I I just looked up to him and I always remember his winning attitude if he really wanted to do something he'd, he'd give it his best and he did and um, that really motivated me the big part that motive motivated me excuse me was his uh, his ability to to get everybody rallied up and to anything he wanted to do. Everybody loved him. Everybody followed it. And uh, as he got older and developed Parkinson's in the late 80s and eventually the head trauma kind of started to set in, I really was motivated to get something done that I could leave in the event that he passed away because it, looking at him just kind of deteriorated little by little it, uh, it really motivated me to, to get this book done. So it was a monumental process. I had written in high school, I'd written in college, but I never took on a thing like this. So originally I wanted to do it for Sports Illustrated or Men's Fitness Magazine, but it was way too hard to describe how a good-looking kid from Cleveland got into the heavyweight championship in 1972 against one of the toughest heavyweights of all time. And the story had to be told, and it had to be told right. So I hooked up with some good people, a great book coach slash author, as well as another editor and uh, author editor, I should say, for her TL champion and John Ludermoser with uh, being an editor and helped me do it professionally, do it the right way. I am self-published and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to people who will listen to this program and it's all part of the marketing thing that self published authors have to do but uh i've seen my duty and i've done it all right yeah and uh, i thought that was a very special aspect of this that um you know you're able to tell the story that your brother couldn't about his life and uh that you're still able to participate with him in the process too tell us a little bit about uh working with him on it well again with head trauma he's got his good days and his and his bad but he still reads books. He's got a nice disability apartment up in Willoughby, Breckenridge Village, one of the finest assisted living homes. And they have an attached nursing home thing, which I'm sure someday he'll eventually end up with. But um, in the process, I ran by a couple of memoirs that I had written on chapters and asked him if he would review them. And if he was right now, keep in mind, I had a lot of help prior to that in 2004 when we moved him up from Houston, Texas, up to his hometown of Willoughby, Ohio, he had quite a bit of suitcase things, oh, where that uh, there things that had been buried, and I came across them, and they were filled with pictures, uh, some scrapbook uh, articles, and a ton of newspaper articles that he kept. I thought, beautiful. That plus combining contacts with his buddies from college, a couple of them that still remembered him well, vividly gave me some stories of his roommates there and a couple buddies from his high school I was supplied with a ton of really good things and authentic 
so I thought that was, that's really important because, you know, with authors doing a project like this, you really struggle with keeping things online, keeping dates correct, uh, things that happen. Because once it's printed and it's out there, the last thing I want to hear is somebody say, what? You know, nah, you had that all wrong. And, and uh, But Terry got to read a couple of the chapters. I did them, and I'd come back, and I'd say, how, how is it, kid? How do you like them? He said, yeah, I love them. And I said, okay, well, what about the, the dialogue and stuff? Does that seem like what you guys said? He goes, yeah, you got it right on. And I said, okay, well, how about something else? You got anything to add? And he goes, no, I like the way it is. <laughs> so that was a little frustrating, but yeah. uh, he did approve the last copy that came from the Amazon subsidiary that I went through. They send you a, uh, a book that's ready to go to print, and you better make all your changes to it. Or it's going to cost you a lot more if you find something <laughs> later after print, as you guys know. Yeah. But uh, this is all new to me. So before I had that final ultimatum, I briefed through it. I found a couple items, and I said, okay, this is about it. But i got to let Terry read the whole thing from start to finish, which he did. And um, bless his heart, you know, he's, he, he can read, and he, he can understand things. So he just has to read them a couple times. So I gave him a week or two, and I called him up and I said, hey, kid, are you, how are you doing? He goes, oh, hi, Jeff. He goes, yeah, I'm reading the book. And I said, yeah, how is it? He goes, man, I love it. I said, what, what part are you at? He said, uh, I'm at the part where I meet Karen, his first wife, and it was about two-thirds of the way done. And I said, yeah, I bet you can hardly wait to find out what happens next, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had fun with him, you know, and then overall he reviewed everything, and he says, yeah, it's exactly, I got to talk to his old manager, bless his heart, he's 87, 88 years old now, uh, he's been in and out of the hospital with clogged arteries, but tough old boy, Doug Lord, he's in the book, he's his manager, Ronnie Wright, his corner man in the Frazier fight, got to talk to him and give me a little insight, um, you know, just a lot of validity to it and some of the guys I couldn't talk to I would have loved to talk to Muhammad Ali he did like Terry and they got him on several of his bouts as a preliminary fight before Ali's main event and of course Joe passed away in 2011 um, I have not made contact with Marvis Marvis Razor but it wouldn't matter I don't he really wouldn't be much help uh, Floyd Patterson no longer with us and um, you know, some of the things, that was another thing. I really wanted to get this done before somebody else died, not only right. just Terry, but, you know, people that were in that era and remember it and love it. So, that, that yeah, he did help and to a degree, but uh, I was pretty much, along with the, the book coach and the editors, kind of doing it myself. They loved the story. They loved the outline. And they said, yeah, keep going with this part. Build that up. And... We eliminated quite a few chapters that I had, like a lot of authors realize. You got, you know, a couple, two or three pairs of eyes looking at it. They're going to tell you, here, you're going to drag too much. And so, and one one final point on, on com comparing my book, uh, being a self-publisher, of course, you want to do it economically. I chose to go self-published as opposed to waiting around for months on end to have a major publishing house give me a yay or nay. But uh, I'm able to get it done, polished, professional. And then the next thing you got to do is find out what your competition is. And I picked the top ten boxing books on Amazon. And um, all of them have a similar flavor in that all of them are written by a professional writer. 
with or without the individual, but they're pretty much, you know, ex-sports writers and stuff. And they all have that flavor where this happened, that happened, this happened at home and that, but none of them have that combination of the brother love, uh, family unity in the 60s that we had and reciting the music and the, the TV shows we had, the fact that we only had three channels on. I nonchalantly mentioned things like this. And in my opinion, well, I know for a fact I'm the only one in that top ten that's a brother of a, a person who was an underdog and fought for uh, the heavyweight title. And um, I, I think I came away different than all of theirs. So I felt good. I should have. I should have. Uh, I should have a chance at beating or succeeding some of the sales that these other guys have done, like Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Alexis Seguillo's good book out. Of course, Ray Boom Boom Mancini had his book uh, produced in 2012, had a movie made by Sylvester Stallone on TV in the late 80s after he won the title and stuff. So, But they still, in my opinion, they, and others as well, they, they just don't carry that, that extra pizzazz or that connection, you know, that, that you have. That uh, I have. Uh, well, Tom, you've read it. You know, give us your opinion a little bit of um, how how you thought it uh, it read. <clears throat> well, there's there's so many things that stand out, but one of them is, you know, a lot of times we hear about boxers that are uh, from the wrong side of the tracks, and uh, they grew up with uh, legal situations, and they were fighting in the street, and then they went to jail, and they learned how to box, and you know, these kind of stereotypes. Now, we all know that that's certainly not always true, but I think in looking for a polar opposite, Terry kind of fit that bill, <laughs> and I think the way that he sort of backdoored in the boxing was, uh, maybe you could say coincidence. I prefer to use the word synchronicity, but uh, Jeff, if you could enlighten us on how Terry wound up uh, shifting from uh, a football scholarship to boxing, I think that's a fabulous part of the book. Very fascinating. Yeah, I did too. That's what motivated me to, to get this story done correctly. And what I chose to do is to start the reader off in the year 1964 when Terry was a freshman at college. Now, prior to that, his senior year in high school, he was a four-point student at uh, Willoughby South High School in Lake County, about 30 minutes east of Cleveland. Excellent suburb. We're, we're all uh, from an upscale, middle-class family. My dad and his brother and his cousin ran several corporations there. We had good upbringing. We had a great family. Terry had, um, well, he was the oldest. Tom was second. I was in the middle. Denny was fourth. And then Mom finally got the baby girl she always wanted, and she was fifth. And so we had five kids in the family. We had great upbringing. And uh, Terry was excellent in student in high school, four-point student, uh, excellent in athletics. He was on the, he was, well, two-time letterman, fullback, linebacker on the football team. He he lettered three years, which was incredible back then, sophomore, junior, and senior year at Willoughby South. And that was saying a lot because his senior year, he got to replace their first baseman, a key player who broke his arm. And the coach said, I'm putting in Terry. Terry was new to the school because we had just moved from Painesville back to Willoughby in 1960. And I met one of his buddies at his 50th reunion two years ago, 2014, in the summer. And he told me the story. He was livid that the coach was going to put a freshman 
on first, I'm sorry, a sophomore on first base with such a fabulous team and most all of them seniors. Now, you, you remember Tom and, and Rich and Tony when you were a sophomore in high school. Remember what the seniors used to look like to you? They were like grown <laughs> men. Yeah. Uh, huge, huge gap. I mean, now, now at my age, two years is meaningless. Uh, 10, 20 years is meaningless. But back then, two years was uh, the Grand Canyon. Gigantic. And, and 16 years old, looking at an 18-year-old, some of these guys actually started beards. It was like, wow. You know, and they were, mm-hmm. their muscles were huge. Well, that's what he was competing with, and he did it well because at the end of the, his sophomore year, they were conference champions. So by the time he was a senior, he had a lot of colleges going after him, and he, like my grandpa, really wanted to cut his own trail. He didn't want to go to another Ohio college or something. Terry was just the type to, I'm going to go all the way. He was determined to play big college football. That was his goal. And uh, he narrowed it down to two colleges. One was uh, USC, Southern Cal. The other one was Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Now, we were devoted Methodists, and the minister heard that Terry, who was very popular both in school and at church, wanted to go south and that stuff. And he said, well, Terry, here, I, I think you ought to consider Southern Methodist because, number one, they have a great theology college, probably one of the best in the, in the United States, and it's good to have a good that background for history if you want, or law, or whatever. But the other thing is, SMU was part of the Southwest Conference, and that was what got Terry excited, that and looking at the brochure of the nice campus and the warm weather. But Southwest Conference consisted of Daryl Royal's Texas Longhorns. And it doesn't exist anymore. But back then, they were the national champs. And they were three-time champions of the Southwest Conference, which also included Arkansas, Texas A&M, Baylor, you know, and, and several other schools. Big powerhouse teams. And Terry just envisioned himself being a, uh, a running back in a powerful conference and doing that. Well, as, uh, as it turned out, his first uh, I'm sorry, the first 10 days of practice, he injured, he re-injured a knee, I should say. He had pins in his knee from a previous high school uh, game and um, never, never bothered him after he healed in, in baseball, and he certainly was able to go to, to SMU and be on the football team, but this did him in. And the coaches felt bad. They saw his athletic ability. They saw how, how good he was on the field. And one of the assistant coaches said, Terry, you know, I feel bad, but you're, you're never going to play football again. But um, now that you're getting better and you got that knee brace working for you, I think you ought to pay a visit to this gym downtown Dallas. And it was a boxing gym. And he did, and he got great coaching, and it just all was just by chance. And Terry being the, the go-getter and always wanting to try something new, and even though other football players had been in and out of that gym, other tough guys had been in and out of that gym and got their heads handed to them. Terry listened and learned what the coaches were telling him and got into the uh, Golden Gloves. He won his novice division um, in front of 5,000 people. And he just loved the excitement, the adrenaline. And he was hooked from that point on. Awesome. So that's how he, uh, he endeavored to go in there. But it's not your classic boxing story. In fact, uh, you know, while a lot of these boxers have tough guy fathers or some that abused them, some that left them for broke, um, some that were former fighters themselves. Like Mancini's dad was um, a great welterweight. And um, 
was ranked number one in the world pro and then got drafted in World War II, got hurt in the Army really bad, almost died, and that was the end of his career for boxing. And then uh, Mancini's story of Boom Boom was his goal was to be a champion that his dad never had. Well, our dad, like I said, he's executive corporations and stuff. When Terry called home all excited one time in Dallas and told the family while he was at college, he said, hey, I won an amateur boxing match. And uh, the Golden Gloves are coming up, and I'm thinking about going in it. Well, the boys, us, were just doing backflips. Like, what? That is so cool. You're going to be like Elvis Presley and Kid Galahad, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, really enthusiastic. But I, as I wrote in the book, when my dad got on the phone, we heard him say, well, Terry, you know, I didn't send you down there to get in a boxing ring. You could have done that right here in Cleveland. It saved me a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's cool. Prestigious college, four-point student you know, down yeah. there, and he ends up in this dingy boxing ring. So that's how it went. And it's just excitement and a lot of human interest to it, which I don't think, uh, the, the like I said, the current boxing books that I've read just touch on those things. Right. They don't really get into that heartfelt felt see, uh, feeling that you have, or that that the butterflies that a guy gets because he's never done this before, and he's getting in the ring in front of hundreds, and in, during the tournament it was thousands right. of people under those lights. And Tom, you experienced it. Tony, you experienced it. Yep. I experienced it, and I think that helped in my writing because I that's how I felt. Right. And it was like holy cow. So that's how I bring the reader into it. I think there's a lot of guys that are 60 and older that they're going to say, man, yeah, that's, that's cool. I mean, I huh, I never would have thought to do that. And, and tell us a little bit, too, about uh, that's your... One of Terry's milestones. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit, too, about yeah, your fighting background. Mm-hmm. You had a little bit of uh, experience yourself, right? Yes, I won the city and regional novice light heavyweight championship in 1974. Uh, I, I trained at the same gym Terry did when he came up here as, as he, when he was a teenager at Billy Wagner's gym in Collinwood. And um, I got excellent training, just like Terry did. I listened to what the, they told me. They, you know, and here I am. I mean, give me a break. At 74, Terry had fought for a heavyweight championship two years earlier. And I'd go to this boxing match, and they'd go, Daniels, uh, you any relation to Terry? And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, and they're all like, "Oh God, here we go!" And I'm thinking, "Oh shit!" You know, I'm I'm not all that great, certainly yeah. not yet. <laughs> but it did help, you know. And uh, but I got my training there, and then in '76 and '77, I won open division regionals down in Columbus when I was down there, and went to two nationals. I got sick the first time, and the second one, I got I, I won the fight. My, everyone that saw it said I won it, and they gave it to the other guy. Well, that was the end. I just gave it up after that. But the experience and the excitement, the adrenaline that a young guy goes through that's never done this before really helped in describing that in the book. And several people have told me that. Women have told me that. They said, man, I was really nervous for Terry when he was doing this. And I said, good, because I was too. Right, yeah. And it's just yeah, the words come off your fingers. Go ahead. Exactly. That's a special kind of adrenaline rush. And, and Rich has been there too. Rich is no charity boy at this, also. So, <laughs> all of us know that. All of us know that feeling. Like I said to you in one of my emails, I said, "You know, that's a that's a long walk from that dressing room into yes. that ring or that cage if it's MMA." And 
I had this uh, this one uh, tough man place I was fighting at. It was about 50 feet. You know, <laughs> it was 50 feet, but that was a long walk. As you as you said before, people die in there, and it really the book really gives you an appreciation of the risk that fighters take. And another thing that struck me about the book, it just seemed like so many stars lined up for Terry. Because yeah. I like to ask fighters that have made it to that level, and, you know, Rich and Tony have heard me say this before, that a lot of times athletes, I think, in any sport, that there's that aha moment, that I call it, where all of a sudden you look around and you realize, I'm good at this. I'm really, really above average at this. And I like to ask guys, sometimes, you know, did you have that moment? And I think Terry had that moment fairly quick because I think he had the talent and he had the right atmosphere. He had a solid uh, gym. He had a solid team behind him. He was a diligent student at it, very smart, very talented. And I think things came together pretty quick because uh, he, he seemed to ascend the ranks pretty quick. He did. And, you know, imagine, guys, it's 1965, 1966, 1967, okay? He had a lot of turmoil out there with um, the race riots. And he's in the middle of Dallas, Texas, and he's in the heavyweight division. Another thing about Terry, he was never a true heavyweight. The most he ever weighed was 190 in the amateurs and 195 in the pros. And he would take, even in the amateurs, he told his buddies after his novice win, his light heavyweight, in, in, uh, at SMU at the cafeteria one day, he said, yeah, I'm going to go in the open division this year. And he go, really? And he said, yeah, and I'm going in the heavyweight division. They go, wow, why, Terry? Man, these guys, these guys are beasts. And he says, yeah, well, you know, I was all prepared to take on these big linebackers at the Southwest Conference. I could do it here. And they go, well, that's true. But still, he said, yeah, well, here's the thing. People like to go to a good boxing match, but they love to see a good heavyweight match. And that's right. still true today. Right. And he had Dallas there. And Dallas wanted to see someone who, at that time, Cassius Clay was getting all the thing. Loved him. I thought he was funny, so did the rest of the world. But uh, being still in the racial turmoil that we were in, people wanted to see a little more equality. They wanted to see a good white heavyweight. And there was Jerry Quarry who came along. And boy, was he ever good in the amateurs and stepped up. But with Terry, he got his first Golden Gloves jacket. It had his name on it, had the gloves on it. And guess what? He's down there in prestigious... SMU. He didn't have a letter jacket yet, and he was on campus with all the rich guys and the big stud football players. They all had their letter jackets, but none of them had a jacket, a letter jacket that said "Boxing Golden Gloves Champion" on it. And boy, and you may know that experience too, Tom. That is just man. You're different, and it's cool among your buddies. So he always got kudos, like you wouldn't believe. And the girls liked him. He uh, just very charismatic, never too cocky, and had his life. And one other thing, when he turned pro, he's down in Dallas. Now, my father and his brothers managed Daniel's Brothers Fuel Company, and it was a fuel distribution, and it did very well. It was very big in Lake County. A lot of people know it. Uh, it's not anymore because they sold the company. But uh, when an interview came up and... Somebody who didn't know him said, well, Terry, what kind of background? I mean, you come from a prestigious family. What's your dad do? And Terry says, well, he owns an oil company. He managed an oil company. Well, they think down in Dallas, that means he owns like 50 rigs, and he's flooding the market with a boatload of money. And it's like, holy cow, you really? And they write about that. 
And so you talk about his time in the limelight. And as an amateur, I got an article it's on my website, which you can see, mybrotherthboxer.com, and Tom's seen it. Uh, there's an article that I copied on there, one of many, put it on a PDF scan, and you can see it. it on the cover it was 1967 uh, Golden Gloves. Terry won a magnificent final match. And the, the night that that happened was Cassius Clay was taking on Ernie Terrell in the Houston Astrodome and among 35,000 people. So the sports the next day had the headlines. It said Clay, they still called him Clay then, uh, takes Terrell in, uh, and they showed these three still pictures of Cassius Clay hammering Terrell. And it was the fight where he kept going, what's my name? What's my yeah. name? He wanted him to be called Ali, and Terrell kept calling him Clay, and so did the other reporters. And it pissed him off. Right. Well, right beneath that headline, it said Daniel's uh, Cookie Crumbles, the guy he fought was Cookie Wallace, really tough uh, black guy, runner-up to the AAU National Championship, all this stuff. Terry knocks him out in a minute and 23 seconds of the first round, and that got every bit as much publicity as Cassius Clay the above him. Now imagine, you just asked, what was his aha moment? And that, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get better than that, does it? Right. Yeah, exactly, and that also shows how important boxing was then. That it it was the combat sport. And, I mean, it was water cooler talk. I mean, it, there was nothing but big fights, and it was just a on a whole other level at that point than than we see today. And also another interesting thing in the book is Terry's uh, services when he was an amateur were required in a little bit of uh, extracurricular things. You uh, got into detail about that bar incident. Oh, right. Well, I won't be taking <laughs> things out of the book. We'll let the readers pick up on that. I know, yeah, I, I, I know, I know. I, I, I'm just teasing. We, we don't want details, okay? I'm just yeah. letting the appetite of our listeners buy the book. Okay, <laughs> buy the book. Well, Learn about seven, seven, 78 speed records. Learn about what it's like to fight in a smoke filled arena. You don't hear about that anymore. Learn about what it's like to get hit and you don't know if it's the camera flash bulb or the guy's punch that's causing the light in your head. Yeah. All good stuff. All good stuff. It is. Those are great times. And, and we got to say, as you said, boxing really took off. And I write that in the book that uh, 1956, Rocky Marciano, retired, undefeated heavyweight champion, got all the press all the time. Everyone loved him. 1958, a uh, very popular light heavyweight in Cleveland. His name was Joey Maxim. They were getting the Friday night fights were still on. But. The heavyweight champ at that time was Floyd Patterson, given the fact he was two-time heavyweight, came back from uh, Johansson with that big win. But the guy just was, he was Mr. Polite. He'd say, hello, goodbye, I got to go, you know, to the press. He, they just couldn't do it. Then Sonny Liston takes over, ex-con, big thug, right, and driving a Cadillac and showing everybody how tough he is. He, too, press was like, ugh. But then when... Cassius Clay came on the scene, 1964. He was the reporter's dream come true, and he was the shot in the arm that boxing needed. Am I right? Because by that time, professional wrestling was starting to get a little more attention than boxing was on TV. And when Cassius Clay came along, and then from that point on, you had ABC Sports, and a new man by the name of Howard Cosell. I mean, all these things were happening when Terry was in the ranks, 
on the way up. So the reader is going to love it. I start in 1964 when he's a freshman in college, and I end the book in 1972 when he gets done with the Frazier fight. Now, I do have an epilogue because everyone says, well, where is he now? What happened to him? You said he was hurt and everything. Yes, but uh, I save it to the end, and I give it a couple pages worth to tell the reader that he does have Parkinson's. He, um, he does have some head trauma. He still gives his good old smile to the people there. They love him, keep an eye on him and stuff. In other words, I, I just didn't want to a reader to uh, keep hearing and seeing the thing go on much the same as we saw Ali hold that 1996 uh, Olympic torch. Remember that? It, it was so heartbreaking. Oh, I remember it. Oh, and you don't want that. Not that Terry's that bad, but it just, I didn't want that for the reader. I, like I say, when it goes into a good book, a good story that I like, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it should have some conflict. It should have good characters that you can fall in love with. It certainly should have a, a main character that you want to root. And, Tom, I think you'll agree. You just, as you get done with one chapter, you go, wow, I wonder what happens next. Just like Terry was finding the book. Gee, I wonder what happens next. And he keeps turning. And then you end exactly. with, a, although it ends with a loss, it was a very tough loss. In fact, I got to thinking about it when I got done with everything. And, of course, watching it again, blow by blow on YouTube. And I thought, man, th there has to be something in the record books for an underdog heavyweight fight that was on TV, witnessed by over 70 million people, who put up such a gallant fight like he did. And I, and I bet if we did the research, we'd find only a handful that made that category of made it, uh, you know, good. It was, he never gave up. He had his shot. He gave it his best shot. He, I mean, even then, Vegas didn't even give him anybody any odds on that fight. Just forget it. We're not gonna bet. It ain't going to last two rounds. And here it was a, a just an epic battle, like a Golden Gloves championship. So... I think we kind of got that going for us too. Anyway, yeah, and I and I think it captured the essence of Joe Frazier. What a sportsman he was! Oh, uh, heck yeah. how, how how positive he was uh, about Terry after the fight was over. Joe just, you know, I don't know how anyone couldn't have been a Joe Frazier fan. Also, you know, I mean, it's just it's nothing but a class act. All the way. Now, one question I have for you, Jeff, that on the webpage, you have uh, a ton of uh, small articles and all kinds of pictures. Now, the question is, for those listening that are going to buy the book, would you suggest reading the book first, then going to the page and looking at the pictures, or the other way around? Well, you know, some people have, they heard about the book, and they're kind of like, hmm, gee, I don't know. And they went to the YouTube, and they saw the fight. And I said to him, okay, and then they said, but I got the book and I read it, and I said, good, that's cool. And it's not like the book is saying, here's the big mystery to it all. He fights for the heavyweight championship, guess what? It, whether you see the fight before you read the book or after the book, you're still going to love the in-between stuff that happened, because they just, how did he do it? How did he get here? Look at this kid, he's ripped. And... Um, uh, going to the website, I think it would leave the reader with the same thought, although I would encourage them to read the book first and then go to the website, because then you could go, oh, here's that, here's that thing he was talking about in the book. 
And here's yeah. a picture that he was talking about. Yeah, oh, yeah. Cool. So I, I would say yeah. instead of spoiling it and getting a, I, you know, the thing about getting a book and you read it, as you guys know, as opposed to watching a movie or a, or a film about it, there's so much more that goes in behind the scenes that the author puts in a book, and you can read it at your leisure and absorb it and think about it. And so if you did that and then went back to see and read the article and go, wow, yeah, that Jeff recorded it just exactly as it happened. Oh, that's cool. It gives a little more sense of, uh, of validity and, I don't know, coolness to it, uh, because I don't know of any other boxing books that do that to that degree. Do you? Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, you know, Jeff, the reason I ask that is because you really painted a pretty good picture of his sparring partners. Uh, you had a few of his opponents mentioned and his manager. And you really kind of captured their essence because, I, you know, when you read a book, if you haven't seen the person, I think we all form a mental image. Uh, and it may not be based in reality, but we form that somehow. But when I went to the webpage, I said, you know, you captured it really pretty good, even the appearance in some ways, you know, just you could just... So that's why I was asking. I mean, to me, it was just kind of fun to, to read it, have the image, and then have a lot of it validated. Uh, old Dickie Wells, I expected a, a pack of cigarettes in his uh, under his T-shirt shoulders, you know. Yeah, real th tough guy, but a, but a good um, Caucasian um, tough guy, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But, uh, yeah, it was important for me, as I said before, putting a good story together. I wanted the reader to, to really uh, feel like they were there and feel the characters. That's why when Doug Lord, when he came into his gym for the first time, and you remember that, uh, Tom, where... I describe it like uh, when a, bo a current boxer that people know changes gyms and he goes in and opens up the door for the first time. It's like the cowboy that comes in to the bar and the bars, the piano player's playing, everybody's talking, and all of a sudden it stops yeah. and everybody yeah. looks at that cowboy. Yeah. And I wrote, Terry felt the same way as that cowboy when he came into Doug Lord's gym. And then when Doug introduces him to one of his, uh, his coaches or his handlers, it's this older, uh, very nice, but ex-Negro uh, boxer that he referred to him as, and his name's Cornbread, Cornbread Smith. <laughs> and what a character, and Doug told me about him, and I just envisioned how he did. He said, yeah, he used to fight in the carnivals down in New Orleans, and I thought, wow, fighting in the carnivals down there. And I put a little blurb when Terry talked to the guy, and that's what I wanted. Just, it wasn't very long, maybe a couple paragraphs. But like you just said, you 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 were there. You felt it. Right. And here's a character. Right. I don't find it, that in other boxing books. I really don't. Right. And, and, and I, I exactly. And I think in any kind of reading, I was always told you want to bring the reader to the story, bring them to the action, make them a part of it. Like they're right in the gym, watching it. Right there, they're right at ringside. And uh, you're capturing uh, Terry's uh, fight with uh, Floyd Patterson and how slick Floyd still was, even at that age. And this was 1970, if I, my memory serves me correct. And yes. uh, just, uh, you, you, that was a great description of the excitement there, too, even if, as far as um, the traffic jam on the way downtown. Oh, yeah. All the, yeah. All the human nature, all the human interest part of it. Yeah. And that's, uh, I'm glad you, you liked that, because that's really what I wanted to hear back from people that read it. 
and as you know, Tom and, and Rich and, and Tony, the, um, it isn't all about boxing. It really is a human interest story. Uh, boxing is a byproduct, but it's a good byproduct right. because I was hoping that this book would uh, get the young readers whom I've heard back from through emails tell me, man, I can't believe this. I'm 26 years old. Danny Eiffelis, for example, he's in the book. He gave it to his son uh, for Christmas. And the kid said he read it in three days. He goes, I never read a book in three days. He goes, mm -hmm. I couldn't put it down. And he yep. said, I just felt so, uh, it wasn't because my dad was in it. He said, I just felt like it was somebody I got to know. And I said, good, because that's what I wanted. So I'm hearing that from, from younger people. I've had several gals that my wife knows that shared the book with. They went out and got it. They read it. I didn't tell them to do all this stuff. One of them wrote a review on there. Stephanie uh, Fury. It's on my one of my Give Me Five Stars. She goes, holy cow, as a woman from a female perspective, it really got me interested. Of course, you know, there's some girl stuff in there. <laughs> and um, I think I hit on all areas that, once again, I don't see the involvement in other boxing books that do that. You right. know, like you say, most of the other guys had a real tough upbringing. They rarely mention anything about other than, well, he met his high school sweetheart and married her, and they had four yeah, kids. You, yeah, you, you had some pretty, pretty uh, salacious details by the book. I'm going to shut up. I don't want to give any anything away. Okay, yeah, I got to <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty important, too. And in fact, the, the review from the Beacon Journal said that one of the last sentences in her paragraph said, a little less detail on Terry's romanticism would have been appreciated. <laughs> and my wife read that, and she goes, you know what? That's not a cut. She said, that's really good. I mean, the overall, the review is very good. They like the book. And she goes, so what? That'll probably prompt some of the guys to buy the book just to find out, you know, what happens <laughs> in some of the female things. So I handled it correctly. I think it is a PG-rated book, wouldn't you, Tom? I mean, yeah, it was handled in good taste, okay? But it left a little more to the imagination than, well, he met his high school sweetheart, and she didn't approve his career, but she stood by. No, it, it went a little further than that. Absolutely, and he didn't meet his high school sweetheart. He met a, a blonde down there in Dallas, Texas, and so uh, everything was different. And he didn't come from a low-life family and didn't have a father that beat him and everything. Everything was contrary to that. Great baseball player, great athlete, very smart in school, and uh, his professor. Engi engineering, engineering major, okay? Wow. Yes, engineering uh, major. When he got into the pros, he kind of let that slide, and he ended up getting a bachelor's degree in, I don't know, general something or other. And he did go to uh, North Texas State for a year, year and a half. I did hear from his roommate there, too. He sent me an email. Got the book. He goes, holy cow. But he did go back after the Frazier fight, like I say in the book, and he did. He only needed like six hours from SMU to get his degree, and he wanted that graduation ring from SMU. He didn't want to just take it and say, yeah, I graduated from college. He was just like Terry. He wanted to do it right, and he did. And I think my dad was proud of him of all that stuff at the very end. He didn't like the boxing part, but you know what? At the end, he did support him from the standpoint of a father and a son, and I thought that was great, and then the story needed to be told. So Exactly, and, and uh, as I mentioned to you before, I only knew your father uh, very late in life. But right. I know he, he had a lot of, well, he had a lot of pride on all of you boys. And as I've said, too, one other part of the book that I found fascinating was the Big Brother Syndrome. 
because I'm an only, I'm an only child. And to me, having a big brother like that would, oh, wow, what an experience it had to be. But I didn't realize the gigantic albatross that could be and, and that gigantic shadow that he would cast. I mean, I should have known this because when Come I on. read that book, yeah, right. when I read that book, it, it, just, it just smacked me. And when I talked to Denny about it, you know, I had always introduced Denny, first off, just talking about his fighting skills. Because Denny, right. uh, right. you know, working right. with uh, working with future UFC fighters up at our gym, when it came time for serious sparring, it would be we try to cut it after you know, like before a week before the fight. But in that two to three week period before the fight, the action would get pretty heavy, and Denny would go full blast. I mean, throwing himself into it. Denny's one of the toughest guys I'd ever encountered in my life. And when I'd introduce him to people, I'd say, yeah, I train with this guy, but he ain't no fun to work with. You know, and, I, I, and then I would throw in almost accidentally that, well, this, you know, his older brother actually fought Joe Frazier for the heavyweight championship. Not that Danny needed that added to his aura, but that's what I was doing. And I didn't realize that you don't want that to steal the show, in a sense. And all four of you... You know, as far as Tom uh, making it, uh, well, still a golf, you know, uh, the golf pro at uh, one of the courses in Willowbrook, I believe, correct? Right. Tom is still a resident golf pro, and with uh, Denny's achievements and everything that you achieved in football, wrestling, and the Golden Gloves, all three of you were your own men. And I'm glad you brought that out, because I think that's another dimension that all of us can think of that if one sibling really stands out, that doesn't mean the other ones don't have their own accomplishments. And I, I thank you personally for that. Maybe yeah, you know. I had some friends in high school whose brothers went on to play pro football, and one was a pro basketball player. But the football player had some amazing things that he did. And these are all good Caucasian guys. And uh, I met his other brother one time at a bar, and this was probably 75, 76. And the first thing out of his mouth was, hey, don't be talking about Tony, okay? I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Tony was his brother, the football player. And as I mm -hmm. mentioned in my epilogue, I went on to play football, small college football at Heidelberg College, which is now Heidelberg uh, University. But we had a great football team, and the guys, the seniors there were big. And again, once I say is you... Even though you're a senior in high school, you look at the senior in college, they still look like grown men, man. Yeah. Bigger oh, yeah. and stronger. And they'd say, what? You're Daniels. Terry Daniels? Yeah. What, what'd you do? Uh, come out of prison or something? I'm like, no. <laughs> and what'd you do? Beat up your father? And uh, No. It came from a good family. And so like, holy cow. But then, as I say, just like with my friend who talked about his brother, the football player, You'd be at a bar or something, and, and it would go something like this. Say, hey, Tom, I want you to meet my friend Jeff, Jeff Daniels. He's Terry Daniels' brother. You remember the guy that fought Frazier? And this is, you know, yeah. summer of 72, just only eight months ago he fought Frazier. And it, like, you're kidding me. Well, where's your brother now? What's he doing? And it's all about Terry. And it's yeah. okay. But when it goes through 20 times in a row, you get a yeah. little tired of it. And it's like... Yeah, Terry's a good guy. I love him, but hey, man, what's going on tonight? <laughs> or something. I, I can't believe it. Hey, Jim, come over here. This is Terry Daniels' brother. Terry, Terry, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the syndrome you're talking about. Yeah, that kind of reminds me. Dealt with it. Danny dealt with it. Tom, everybody did. But 
yeah, it, yeah, it's a and, challenge. And, I write that in there. That kind of yeah, reminds and, me of uh, actually having to uh, do an interview with Frida Foreman, the uh, one of uh, George Foreman's only daughters, back in uh, I want to say like 2006 when I just first started on a MySpace page, and mm-hmm. uh, so I connected with her there, and uh, you know I kind of felt like awkward trying to ask to get an interview with her dad. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to cross yeah. that bridge, you know, because uh, she was doing her own thing. She was trying to start a health club and everything, and it was a pretty decent yeah. interview. Um, well, we were fortunate to go through that, that little sliver of life where Terry's, he was known all over the world. My God, we took a little trip in 75 uh, to New York City. I did with a couple guys. This is 75. And they came into this bar, New York City, and a guy went up to the bartender. He said, hey, we want some shots and stuff. And he goes, Hey, do you follow boxing? You saw some boxing pictures up there. And it was this uh, big black guy, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we do. And he goes, this is Terry Daniels' brother. And he didn't even have to say, you know who Terry Daniels He looked at me, and he goes, you want to fight Frazier? And I said, yeah. He goes, man, here you go. I'll give you a drink. And I was like, <laughs> you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was fabulous. And, oh, man, it, it was a lot of fun in that little sliver of time. Many people have experienced that. Uh, not man, I'm sorry, not many have, but the ones who have got that shot and they had their time. And uh, and that's all I wanted to write about. I wanted the reader to, to see how he got there, to experience the love and the friendship he made along the way, and the influences he had on many, many people today. I hear back and they, they say, tell your brother we really love him, you know, and, and it's cool. And it's all the boomers now. We're all over 60 and... Terry's 69, so it's right in the middle of the, the boomer marketplace, and that's why I thought my book should do good, because uh, I got it conveniently priced on Amazon, twenty three fifty, and uh, the boomers are readers now. They're retiring every day. They, want, they, they can't stand the junk that's on television. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, they love, they remember the times of boxing, and this is a different story, so that's why I chose to go self-publish. I thought, man, I could... I can really handle this thing on my own, but now I'm starting to realize I I may need a publisher. I may need a Simon Schuster or a Price Waterhouse. So, right. uh, Tom, I'd love your feedback on that whenever we communicate again. But uh, that's sure. my thought. And, and and I also think too that uh, just to put it in real perspective, it's also a study in the story of determination and courage, because Absolutely. anyone that thinks. Anyone that thinks that sport's easy, I, I mean, yeah, of course, it's like anything. You watch a smooth performer and you think, yeah, I got it. Yeah, okay, get in there. Talk to me after the first round you've been, if you can get through three minutes. We'll have a little chat about how easy it is. And yeah. just the courage that it takes, and it's like I said in my review, well, whenever you're faced with a, a situation... Just think about it. At least you don't have to climb into the ring and stare across, and there's a prime time smoking Joe Frazier. <laughs> and this yeah. time, Good luck. it's all business with Joe, but you don't want the kind of business he was given in the ring. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there you go. You hear the excitement in his voice? He's, he's read the book, and he knows. He envisioned that. Tom envisioned that thought from the book, like, holy cow, you know, I'm looking at Frazier. He just got done beating Muhammad Ali, undefeated Ali, yeah. broke his jaw. Everybody loved it because he broke Ali's flapping jaw and showed everybody he's a gentleman and a true champion. Now he's facing this guy, and this guy wants to kill him <laughs> and tried yeah, to no. kill him. 
Now, Jeff, yeah, and, um, and, and it's like, like I said before, you know, and, and my colleagues are a little younger, but they're historians and they understand this stuff. I mean, they can go back in history and teach me some lessons. But they've actually lived at that time, and you knew that there was one heavyweight champ back then. And Joe didn't duck anyone. He was going through everyone. He was just a buzzsaw, and he was at his peak right then. So he tore up Query. He tore up Patterson. He tore up not only Ali, but uh, all of them, all of the big ones in their prime. He ripped them apart, and thanks to YouTube, you can see most of those fights. And it's just it's an honor to write about that. And uh, I sent Marvis a copy, of, and he sent me his book. And once again, it's good. It's well-written. Uh, it is a boxing book. But, again, it, it kind of, um, it just, I don't know, it just doesn't grab the reader, in my opinion, like, like my book does, being the brother. And as I said earlier, I think I'm the only one of a brother that fought about a, uh, I'm sorry, wrote about a heavyweight fighter. And um, it was made. Oh, and one final thing. I just, I have a Facebook page now. I four days and I got over a hundred people on it. My kids showed me how to set it up. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I set it up for the book primarily, but you can get it, uh, Jeff Daniels, Medina. When someone said, Jeff Daniels, there's about a hundred of them on there. Which one are you? So they typed in Jeff Daniels, Medina, and they got my Facebook. But um, I did put, I loved Tony's, uh, Tom, you sent me his link to uh, the, the Joe Frazier statue. And I put that on my Facebook page, and boy, people are really liking that. <laughs> and I uh, went through the whole thing. And I made a mention. I said, my friend Tom sent me this, and Tom Rich and Tony Pinacalli, uh sorry if I didn't pronounce that right, but Pensacalli, uh have the website, and I put your website on there, and click on this video. And it was cool. I did it all myself. I go, wow, there it is. I did it. <laughs> and people are commenting on it. And... Um, I said, by the way, Tony is the one in Apollo Creed's outfit. <laughs> that was really unique that he did that. I, I don't know him yet, but uh, I can think I know him. I know many guys like him. Yeah. And what a pistol. He just He's kind of like Terry in a way. He said, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm going to think of something outrageous to do, and I'm going to do it. And, uh, hey, I, I got balls as big as yours. I don't care. I'm going to do it. And I get his picture with Marvis and these guys, and he's standing there with that big grin on his face, <laughs> tattoos, and he's got a Apollo Creed thing. Nobody else had that on there. So, anyway, that was cool. You know, I designed that a couple of years ago all out of a joke. Um, we were going to a Phillies game one time, and the Philadelphia guy, and um, I had a local fan hat. It was 4th of July, and I said, I want to wear this Uncle Sam hat to the game, and hit my face red, white, and blue. And my mom and my aunt said, we won't sit with you if you do that. I said, is that a promise? And then I did it, you know, just to annoy him. And then um, yeah. I did it for, you know, a company picnic game and wore Uncle Sam hat. And then I found one that had sequins on it, a real cheap one at, like, a party store. So I bought it, and they ended up winning the World Series. So it became like a good luck charm. So I'd wear it to all the games, and people couldn't get pictures. I'm like, why? Because I'm wearing an Uncle Sam hat? And there was one time they were playing the Cubs, and I had front row seats. And the announcer, who was in the Hall of Fame, who has since passed away, Harry Callis, was making fun of me live on the air. And um, <laughs> I did it to Chicago two years later. And there's a guy in Chicago wearing the same hat as me. And I get a picture of him wearing the exact same hat. I'm like, then see later. I bet you you saw the game and stole my gimmick. Um, so I said, now i got to run up him. So I, and my hat was falling apart. It was a $9 party store hat. 
So I found someone that would make me a secret Uncle Sam hat, and I said, you know, I'll put the Phillies logo on it. And she put me the shipping cost, and I said, well, that's pretty expensive. I said, well, for that shipping cost, how much of a cape cost, too? And she gave me the price. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And that's why I got the cape, and they got the Phillies logo on the back, and then I did the shorts and the socks and the shoes, and I put the whole getup together. When I, I wear that to all the games I go to, I've been on the news, and in fact, Rich has the copy of it. I was in Clearwater for spring training a couple years ago, tornado and the back of my outfit says <laughs> Tornado, because that's my nickname, and there were, tornado war- there were tornado warnings that day. So on the local Philadelphia news, my friend sent me the clip, said, oh, they had tornado warnings in Clearwater, and all we got was this guy here. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And, and of course... Uh, Oh, you met Marvis, and you said, "I want you. I want you, Mom. You're talking to me. What are you doing wrong? I want you." You know what I actually did on that was uh, there's one picture on there. You see him looking at my phone and smiling. I was okay. showing him a picture of me, him, and his father from 1994. Oh wow! When I was 17 years old. Yeah. And uh, one thing that uh, Tony and I have in common, other than the fact that we almost fought each other in the Nationals back in college, uh, is uh, we're huge Rocky Marciano fans. Uh, We both uh, went to the statue dedication that they did for him up in Brockton, Massachusetts. And I met a lot of his family. Tony met a lot of his family. We talked to a lot of people on the show. Um, We actually talked to um, Goody Petronelli, a good friend of his, just before he died, talking about people who you wanted to get to before they died. Um, also, Nikki Sylvester, one of his best friends we did an interview with, one of Rocky's best friends. And there's a lot of parallels, obviously, between your brother's story, especially the weight, fighting at like a buck 85 to a buck 89 like Rocky did at heavyweight. Uh, it's never been done since. <laughs> obviously, there's a cruiserweight division now, so it's different. But uh, talk about uh, Rocky's influence on you guys. And uh, obviously, you talked about it earlier. You mentioned his name. Um, was your brother a big fan of his? Were you a big fan of his growing up? Um, was he a big influence on your brother as far as watching his fights and, and all that? Well, Terry was old enough then. Uh, maybe Tom was. Of course, Terry's by 11 or 12. Uh, everybody had the Friday night fights on, and back in those days you could still carry the heavyweight bouts on uh, major television shows. And I think the big... Um, comparison that Terry has with several other big heavyweight champions is the size of his hands. Tom, you saw a picture of him in 1966. He's got a color picture on my website of a snapshot before they left for SMU, and he's got his arm around my mother, and I put on a little note, notice the size of his hands. They are X, X, X large. They're huge. And Marciano had hands the size of meat hams you know <laughs> the big ones that mom made it at, at uh, christmas time and so did a guy who lives right here in medina pete Rademacher, who took oh, yeah. of course you guys know yeah he's he's in the medina area he's um, he's doing uh he's like terry he's got his head trauma but everybody knows him here in fact they just about a month ago so his daughter pete's daughter uh had for a limited time I, uh, all his uh, thing his gold medal, uh, the uh, judge's card, his robe, both professional and the Olympic robe that he wore in the 56 Olympics, whatever it was, 
31 or 54, I forget. But anyway, a big shrine set up with him with pictures and him taking on Patterson and uh, knocking Patterson down the first round. But he, too, really, really big hands. He was bigger than Terry, though. But that's what really took Terry through the amateurs and was able to knock out some really fabulous amateur boxers. And, uh, and, and incidentally, Terry met up in uh, 67. He went to nationals. In 68, he went to nationals. And in 67, I write about it in the book, after he beat Cookie Wallace, and he's got these knockouts under his belt, and it got all this pumped up adrenaline. His first match was against the prior year's AAU, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry National Golden Gloves heavyweight champion, and um, went up against him. Uh, now i got a million names going through my head. Uh, Clay Hodges. Clay Hodges was the champion. And in 67, he was the first guy Terry drew out of the gate. And the coach told him, he said, you know what, Terry? He says, you know, be honest with you, I'd rather see you take a guy like this guy Hodges on, even though he's national champion, a lot more experience than you. But if you catch him with one of those haymakers of yours, you got every bit of chance of beating him. And you beat him, you got the rest of the thing should be gravy. Right. Well, Terry went out, and he did it while he lost to him. And it uh, wasn't long after that he was at an AAU match in uh, Mexico. It was USA against Mexico. And a guy came up in Houston, came up behind him, tapped him on the back and said, Hey, are you Terry Daniels? Uh, fought Clay, ha- Clay Hodges in the, in the Nationals last year. And Terry said, Yeah. He goes, Hi, I'm George Foreman. He goes, Yeah, I know that guy. He said, Man, he's beaten me twice. <laughs> and this kid was a tough white boy. Yeah. I, I tried to look him up. I couldn't find anything about him. But he won two, probably three national championships. I think he won an AAU championship, too. Oh, wow. But isn't that funny? He <laughs> tells him about that, and Foreman got beat twice by this guy who Terry awesome. went up against. So I thought, wow, that's cool. i got to put that in the book. And, of course, 68, Foreman went on to be the heavyweight gold medalist, which, by the way, turned things around when the racial riots and uh, – Tommy uh, Smith and John Carlos raised those black hands up in the 68 Mexican Olympics. But when George Foreman got up there in that ring and he won that tough fight, uh, he took that American flag and waved it. Man, did that send chills up and down your spine when you read that, Tom? Oh, I'll never forget that moment. Um, Amazing. So it's those little things in the book that come out about amateur times and the times we lived in, the songs we listened to, and the, just the time of the year, the heavy snows we had in Cleveland. I won a accordion contest, the uh, state of Ohio. Um, you guys are Three Stooges fans. Every guy is. We actually saw <laughs> the Three Stooges live in Canadian yeah. Exhibition. Wow. My parents used to go up there, hey, you're going to like this too. Through, uh, I've done some... Uh, commercials through this agency up here for the past year or so. Little things, you know, nothing real big. But I've tried to audition. I want to get this uh, TV stuff in front of me if I ever make it big. But uh, in my book, I talk about one of my favorite groups was the Guess Who. And, Tom, you remember that spot because it's where we were singing that song. I almost cut somebody off, you know. Careful not to do that. Leave one. But um, I got a hold of uh, someone through our uh, agency gave me a link of how to pay for and get some celebrity addresses. So I'm kind of using it for the book. So I packaged up some books, and I sent them out to uh, uh, Burt Cummings was one, and I sent one to Joe Walsh, 
because I met one of his buddies over here in Canton. I sent one to Ringo Starr, one to Paul McCartney, because we went to the Beatles concert. Uh, Terry took us, 1966. And so these kind of things are just once-in-a-lifetime things that happen, and I'm just hoping if one of them responds with either a little note, hey, read your book, like it, or something like that, or hopefully send me like an email of a picture of them holding, holding my book, man, that would be golden. I yeah. make sure I put it on my website, I put it on the Facebook thing. and uh, Marketing is very important. You know, it's exciting <laughs> about that. Go ahead. Well, I'll say this much, Jeff. You're in there throwing punches. And we'll see what lands. But if you don't get in, if you don't get into swing, you ain't going to get. So <laughs> exactly, you got it. And my next thing is, um, I hope to get a referral to uh, uh, this publishing company, Simon Schuster, one of the big ones, and uh, uh, present my case now because I got good reviews. I got books under my belt, and I think these are the kind of things publishers want to see and hear. And uh, if, I, if I could just get one of them to, to really like it and publish it the way it should be, because right now I'm really, well, I'm getting better known right here, but it's like a, a good rock band, you know, right. that's local. Everyone says, oh, you got to see these guys. They're good, they're good, they're good. But if you don't get it with a label, yeah. and uh, I haven't even <laughs> yeah, tapped right. Dallas yet, right. I still got to try and work some angles that way. But I'm thinking I may want to go the way of a good publisher and, you know, get the rights and bite the bullet to give up some of the royalties to them. But hopefully get it in a lot more eyes and hands than uh, I am now. Amazon's doing a great job. If you type in on Google, just my brother, the boxer, the top five things come up on my book, which is great. And um, they show my YouTube commercial for it and all that stuff. But if you don't know enough to click on that, it's like you guys with your website. If they don't know your website fightnewsunlimited.com, you know, how do you know that? How do you know to, to go to that? Well, you got to do some advertising and, right. you know, me, like all the other authors, just saying, well, what the heck? I just went through a boatload of time and money getting this thing produced. I want to start, you know, getting sales going. Yeah, and, um, tough. But I'm learning. It's, it's all a learning process. And you're right. Just like the fight game, uh, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to do, and I'm not stupid. I'm going to take advice from the pros. I'm going to listen. I'm going to give up some of my purse check in hopes that, uh, you know, I'll have more chances to go swinging down the road. But, my gosh, I mean, how many boxing fans are in our age group that would love to get their hands on this thing and really look at it and see that it is not like the normal boxing book that's out there? Right. So, well, one thing that you've got going <laughs> for you is that, uh, you know, that's a part of the process when you're pitching a nonfiction book that you haven't written yet to a publisher, you're supposed to analyze your competition. And it sounds like you've definitely done that, and uh, that's a huge step, actually, to take. Because if you do a proposal, I don't know if you ever looked at that, but um, you know, when you're writing nonfiction books, you're supposed to put a proposal together before you even write it, you know, especially if it's going to cost money for you to go to different places, because the publisher will pay for all that if it's good enough material. Uh, <coughs> so part of that proposal, one of the chapters you have to basically put together for the, the proposal is you know what is your competition you know, pick out 10 books and so whoever you told you to look at that stuff is uh doing a good job there uh and and it is important to be able to tell people uh and describe your book as far as you know how different it is from other books that's a big step so um i'm glad we've uh, we've been able to get just about every point on that uh on that angle of it. 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it's great cool. stuff. It's so great stuff. And, and awesome that you've done it, um, you know, inspired by your brother and also because you wanted that story to last. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of people, like you said, that uh, you were able to get interviews with who are now gone and you'll never be able to get anything from them anymore. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why I'd really like to take all the greatest quotes from the interviews I've done and, and do a book about it. Um, it's, and it, it surprises you. Like uh, a lot of people I talk to in the combat sports business period, whether it be boxing or mixed martial arts, how accessible some of the people in, in boxing and MMA really are if you just are willing to do a little legwork and research. And You talked about, too, um, doing, uh, doing this book was kind of like you, the perfection process was uh, trying to create the, the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> well, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, you know, just getting it to the final phase. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking that just tonight earlier I was invited to the Medina Rotary Club they meet on Thursday evenings over at a big country club over here. And um, someone had heard me at another speaking engagement about uh, evening with the author and doing a book signing. So they had me over there. And they had about 20, uh, 15 people tonight in a thing. And um, <laughs> it's cool. I was telling my wife, she goes, how did it go? I said, well, we ran a little over. And I had to make sure I was home before I got this phone call for the interview. But... I, uh, I, they gave me 20 minutes, and I hit my 20-minute mark, and I started to wrap it up. And, you know, when you do that, people are usually like, okay, thanks, let's hear it for me, or something like that. There was dead silence. And they were looking at me like, what, you, you can't go on? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how much time we got? The guy looks at his watch, he goes, oh, we got time, go ahead. So I went to about, I went 30 minutes. Nice. And I got done, and they still were like, Okay, uh, what else? <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you the whole book. I'm just giving you bits and pieces. I just want you to buy the book. And they laughed, you know, and they said, okay, good. So I said, your friends and family rate is X amount of dollars, and I'll be happy to autograph it. Well, they came all up, and I didn't have enough. I went out to the car. I think it's two more books. And cool. it, that kind of thing is, is cool. It was, uh, it's really an experience that I'm, I'm having every time I do this. And I know I'm on the right track. I know I got a good thing. It's like I can't, I keep saying, I, my goal was to make this like the Beatles' White Album. I wanted every record on that album to be a hit. And this way I wanted every chapter to be a hit. And if, if I got the, the crowd behind me, I'll be like, uh, well, Spartacus and more like uh, Russell Crowe. And that if you win the crowd, you will win your life, you know, whatever that is. And that's what I'm out to do. And, man, when I get feedback, when I get feedback like that and people are excited and they're like, man, really? That's cool. I like that. And the guy came up. He says, we have another meeting. We meet with a club called the Squires here in Medina. We meet once a month. And I think they would love to hear your story. And I'm like, great. And it just keeps that adrenaline going and, it's cool. It's it's my first experience of uh, being in this. But I, I tell you, just like uh, the fight game and everything, I always had this feeling, just like Terry, uh, that in, that incensed this in me and my grandpa and my dad and probably all our lineage. I uh, it's in my blood. I knew I'd be good at it, but I I didn't want to do it half-assed, and I didn't right. want to go well. Uh, you know, uh, this you ever hear speakers like that? You're like, Ugh, I can't yeah. stand this. <laughs> And they're drab. And how many authors have you heard talk about their book? And you're like, oh, brother, really? You wrote this? 
And I didn't want to do that, so I had to come prepared and polished like an actor and do it the right way and do it the same way and, and you know, fill it in. And sure enough, I got done, and it's like the guy that gets done with a play and he didn't hear anything, and all of a sudden everybody goes, yay! <laughs> you know, like, good, okay, great. Remember that in Bruce Lee movie? He goes, let's get out of here before they lynch us. Yeah. <laughs> and he got up, and they all saw him, and one guy started crying, started clapping his hand at the end of that movie. And I would say this, I would say this too, Jeff, that you've got the passion, okay? You're very aesthetic. And, you know, we see some of this political stuff, and you can see so many politicians going through the motions, and, you know, yeah, do they really mean that? In your case, you don't have to sell yourself. Your heart's there. Your heart's on your sleeve, and that's so important. A lot of times good. people have a pretty good BS radar, and I can imagine, I mean, I've never seen you speak live in front of this, but I can sense just how you can get a crowd going. And you look at it this way, you're moving up the ladder at the lo- local club fights, and uh, hope to get some national exposure. So there you go. Yeah, that's cool. I appreciate it, guys. And when you get this thing done, and it's done cool, and what I also like about this is we've been on for a little, a little over an hour, but there's no commercials that I know of unless you plug them in. <laughs> nope. Uh, but before, but um, I think people are going to like that. And I'm going to put it on my Facebook page now that I have one. Yeah, definitely. And promote this thing for you guys. And um, Well, I'll uh, tell you, it, Jeff, it, I'm really glad you're a perfectionist like me. <laughs> because uh, we got it right and uh, no issues. So I'm glad for that. And uh, it was uh, even better the second time. <laughs> Right. Perfect. Good. I hope it is. I mean, you guys deserve it. It's a great site. It's very professional. So I, I, I would hate to do it. You know, I wouldn't do it any other way. Awesome. And I'm glad. It, I hope it really works out good. And like you say, I'm going to keep slugging away, and, and you never know. Yeah, Next actually, uh, and may go all the way to the top. Yeah, it's so. actually <laughs> reminds me of a guy I met down in uh, Cape Cod once in Massachusetts, and he had a little booth at the mall, and he was just selling his books there, and and they were just plain white covers, with the text on the front and no pictures or anything, but uh, they had interesting titles, and he was selling them, you know, three or four of them there, and talking him up and i get to talking to him and and you know uh you feel obligated after five minutes of talking to somebody even if you don't know him you know to buy something yeah. well <laughs> so, that's interesting it's it's because, uh, and i'll close with this i know we're probably over time but uh i picked the picture out of terry i was going to use and the book coach saw it and she goes um oh my god that is beautiful the girls are going to love that and the guy's going to like it too it's got a good guy picture to it and originally i was going to call the book the big brother you never had and she goes, okay, yeah, that's good, but uh, I don't know. You may want to massage it a little bit. And I attended a seminar who gave me the, uh, or at a, at a break, I think it was, somebody gave me a website that authors could go to. And when you went to it, it would, it would say, plug in your title, and we will tell you the, what was it, the potential of, you know, eyes. You have to have the eye vision thing, and then you have the name thing that grips someone to buy your book. Like it's proven in Barnes and Noble, in the libraries and everything else, right? So I thought, okay. And it said this, and he goes, when you get the results, it's going to be, if you are 35% of, uh, what they call it, readability or something, attractability, you are in a very good zone. If you have 50%, you are in the professional zone. Uh And then it said only the best of the best get 70% or more rating on their title. Right. 
so I thought, okay, and I plugged in, you know, the first one I had, flop. The next one I came up, I had like a little list of them, flop, flop. Didn't get over thirty percent. Didn't get over, hell, didn't get over twenty percent. I'm like, oh damn it. So I got to thinking. I looked at it and I went, my brother, the boxer, the Terry Daniels story. I plugged that thing in, and I hit click, and it went fifty percent. Hmm. And I went, yes, all right. So it made me think while you're talking, a little guy with the book and stuff. It must have had a lot of local notoriety or whatever it was. He had to have something that would grip their attention. Uh, because I tell you what, when you go through Barnes & Noble, man, they're right. If I see something that's got a jazzy cover to it and a, and a really cool name, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Of course, with fiction, you want it to be really mysterious looking if it's a mystery thing and, or some guy walking with blood dripping down his hand, something like that. And nonfiction, it can't just be, hey, this is the Babe Ruth story and have them hitting a home run or something. It's got to be something that really grips them in today's times. And if you look at my book cover, I think you agree that that's in that category. So I put a lot of time and effort into that. So with that said, I appreciate your time. And um, I hope the show's a success. And I'll certainly look to get my copy. You can email email me the uh, link. And yep, I'll make and sure we'll to get to that book, up a little cover thing on In the description, the um, I've got, uh, I, I did uh, post the original story on our uh, website with the link to the old broadcast. That's probably going to be defunct now, but the text will still be there with the link. And then what we're going to do is uh, we'll copy a picture of the book and we'll put it uh, right above uh, on the left-hand column there. Uh, right next to my book cool. and uh, June White's book about her son Dana there. So uh, that'll be the book section. Well, I got to get you that, that picture then, right? I got to I download it to you. Yeah, I can find it. I'm sure it's out there. But uh, we'll great cover. talking with well, you. Well, I'll send it to you. It'll be that easier. Then you could just All pull right. up the PDF and. Or do you want it on? No, you want it on JPEG, right? Right. Okay. Great. That works. I got it. All right, Jeff. Uh, thanks for. Uh, talking to us tonight and uh, giving us a rundown of the book. I'm sure uh, a lot of people are going to love reading it, and I can't wait to see what happens with it, uh, whether you go uh, with a big publisher or keep doing uh, what you're doing. It sounds like it's going to work either way. <laughs> and hopefully six months from now we'll do, hey, you guys remember when we interviewed this guy? Well, guess what? You know, <laughs> that'll be cool. All right. We got some All right, Jeff. The real Jeff right, Daniels. Jack. There it is. Tony, Rich, Tom, it's great talking with you. Thanks again. No worries. All right, buddy. Thanks. All right, take it easy. So there you have it, uh, Jeff Daniels. Uh, great book, The Boxer, uh, available on Amazon. Uh, obviously, he's got a Facebook page too. We're going to put all that information on the description for the show. We've got a ton of uh, other material to talk about as well. Uh, we got a whole other part of the show to deal with. Uh, a lot of boxing stuff going on this week. Um, Amir Khan is going to be fighting Canelo Alvarez. I'm a, I'm a, real quick, Rich, because my meds are starting to kick in, and I'm starting to, you know, get ready for uh, start to go to La La Land. Okay. So um, we had the one fight last week, which I thought was uh, actually a pretty pointless rematch between uh, Sergey Kovalev and John Pascal, and. You know, I think the, the public selling point for this rematch was that Pascal was going to be trained by Freddie Roach, and, you know, Freddie Roach was going to, you know, be the miracle worker. 